right, so this is Todd Atkins, and uh, if you're wondering why I haven't been doing as many episodes, it's because I was on vacation in the Philippines for the last three weeks, and uh, I don't think my wife would have been happy if I was doing nothing but podcasts while I was there, so I wasn't doing as many shows. I did do a couple, but uh, now that I'm back home, I'll be doing you know a lot more shows as I always do, and I think you guys are going to find this one interesting. This is going to be with uh, Rob uh, Macy. Who was who is the uh, lawyer behind the UFC fighter antitrust lawsuit? So we did a deep dive into this lawsuit, uh, which just got class certification, and uh, UFC recently appealed. So we're gonna that's kind of we have to see if uh, the judge is gonna grant that appeal or not. Um, probably not likely. If but uh, the documents in the case are going to be released October, early October. So that's going to happen whether the appeal is granted or not. Now, if the appeal is not granted, the first case is going to go through March of next year. So this is going to dominate the news cycle for the next few months and all of next year. So uh, I think those are going to find this interview very interesting uh, because it's a deep dive through the case with the lawyer who filed the case. And uh, he talks about... uh, how he originally, uh, you know, kind of went through everything with Carlos Newton, actually, who came to his house and went through legal files and really put the case together. Carlos was the guy who put the case together, and Rob is the one who filed it. So uh, just a fascinating interview, and Miguel Adorati joins me to ask questions in this interview as well. So check it out. This is Rob Macy. All right, so this is Todd Atkins, and I'm here with Rob Mace, uh, Macy, um, who is the head of the Mixed Martial Arts uh, Fighter Association, and he's also the uh, lawyer who kind of started the ball rolling on this whole UFC uh, fighter antitrust lawsuit. So I'm really thankful to have him here, and uh, I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me, and uh, hopefully we can get Miguel in here at some point. And uh, before we start, I have sponsor Live to Fight Design. Um, they do fight banners and jib banners for uh, people. And if you use my promo code Todd Atkins, you get $20 off your order. Now, Rob, I want to give you a chance to kind of introduce yourself to the audience and kind of talk about your background when it comes to this UFC antitrust lawsuit. Sure. I grew up in a baseball family. Um, my, my brother was a high school star baseball pitcher. He ended up being drafted, eventually made the major leagues. Uh, I was also a huge fan, played baseball through college. But as a result of him uh, going through sort of the, the the draft process, making the major leagues, he was one of the players that was asked to cross uh, the strike line in 1994 by Cam Bonifay. I believe he was the GM of the Pittsburgh Pirates at the time. My brother refused. Uh, the response that he got was to have fun riding in AAA. Um, so I, I sort of knew all this as it was happening to him. I knew how the baseball association worked. I knew the interplay between antitrust league sports and bargaining. Um, I started law school at 21. I was young. I still wanted to compete in a sport. I couldn't do league sports anymore. Um, because once you graduate, once you have a graduate or once you have a bachelor's degree, you're no longer eligible to play. Uh, team sports in Ivy League schools. 
So they had a jujitsu club that practiced out of the Cornell wrestling room. One of my buddies was active in that. We're watching a UFC at my house. This would have been around 1997 or so. He asked me to come out to the jujitsu club. So I started going out to that. Um, we would do jujitsu practice and then at the end of practice roll with some of the wrestlers. That was uh, sort of my first eye-opening experience as to uh, how good of athletes Division One wrestlers are. Even if they knew nothing about jujitsu, just sort of from a strength and athletic standpoint, they could still be dominant. Yep. Um, after law school, I, I moved out to Los Angeles. I ended up in Beverly Hills Jiu-Jitsu Club for a short period of time. I start to see some fighters there, like Oleg Taktaroff would be there, Big Bob Sapp. Uh, Marco Huas was there on occasion. Uh, so, you know, fighters were around. And then about six months later, and, and just stylistically, I liked this much better. I, I had bad bicep tendon, tendonitis. So I did not like sort of the collar chokes or the sleeve pulls. Eddie Bravo beats Hoyler Gracie uh, by triangle, I believe, in around 2003. And at that time, that was an enormous upset. Eddie ends up opening 10th Planet shortly thereafter, and he was doing nogi jiu-jitsu. So instead of, you know, all those pulls, the lapels, the collars, the sleeves, he was using a lot of hooks, underhooks, overhooks. Um, it was just far more comfortable for me. I was in much, much less pain doing that than actual jujitsu with the gi. So I, I end up in 10th Planet. Uh, one of our teammates, Gerald Strabent, gets asked on UFC 44 to fight Josh Thompson on the undercard of a UFC event. So our gym drives out to watch him. He loses, uh, you know, latter half of the first round to Josh. And after the fight, he, he's coming into the stands to borrow money to get home. And I was like... It kind of blew my mind. I, I was like, I don't, I don't understand this. So how is he asking to borrow money to get home? He just fought in an event with fifteen thousand people here. Uh, the concession lines, like no joke, were a hundred deep at that time. Um, so I, I start doing calculations. I'm like, the average ticket price. I sort of had a good idea how many people were there. I knew what the concessions were. I did not know at that time how many pay per views these things were selling. So I started following Dave Meltzer. Dave Meltzer would pu would publish uh, estimates as to the number that these events were selling. Um, and then I started asking fighters questions at the gym. You know, I don't I don't understand. How's how does Gerald not have enough money to get home? And so, you know, they were they were explaining. Well, he's got to pay for his medicals. He might have to pay for a brain scan. He's probably got to fly out a corner. Um, at that time. Those fighters were making 2,000 to fight, 2,000 to win, which literally meant even on the winning side, they were probably paying to fight in the UFC after management fees and after their expenses. They're, they're not making any money at all. They're paying to fight in the UFC. I was like, this, this is crazy. Um, right away, it didn't make sense to me. For years, the UFC was sort of playing the we're losing money game, you know, game in the public, in public. By 2005, it was obvious to me that was not true at all. Um, 
so I, I start the Mixed Martial Arts Fighters Association. And at that time, my, my contacts were just Southern California, a couple in L.A., largely because I started doing legal favors for, for fighters or managers or agents uh, just in Southern California. So I, I, come, I come up with a logo. You can see the logo here, maybe. Um, I put it on folders. I have cards made. I do like explanatory brochures and I start FedExing them around the country. And for three years or so, I get no response at all. So I start writing articles. I, I wrote a series on the Ali Act. I wrote one on the merchandising rights agreement that got a lot of sort of press and uh, pick up. It was sort of widely disseminated. Um, but still, uh, I, I wasn't getting into gyms. Agents were calling me. You know, the people, I had a very, very small circle of people where I can get information from. That changed with Elite XC. So Elite XC in 2008, is a promotion that's doing fairly big shows and they, they had uh, sort of a sizable roster of guys, but it became obvious at some point that they were not going to put on any more shows. They were out of money. Um, what they weren't doing was they weren't releasing fighters and it was, it became apparent. They were just, you know, holding fighters hostage, waiting for a bidder to come along that bid a sufficient amount that they liked until that happened. They were just going to hold them in limbo. So they, a couple of the managers called me and they said, you know, what can we do? I said, well, if we, if we file suit individually, the expenses for just one of these guys is going to be around $500 each in terms of service, uh, service fees and uh, filing fees. Or we can file one suit on behalf of the Mixed Martial Arts Fight Fighters Association who is filing that suit on behalf of a list of members. We'll file a de declaratory action meaning we're not seeking damages. We're just seeking a release from a contract that's not being performed. And they said, we can do that. I said, yeah, we can do that. So uh, I drafted a complaint. We did a cover letter and we sent it to Elite XC. And the cover letter just said, if these fighter contracts are not resolved within the week, we're going to file this lawsuit next Friday. They were resolved. They ended up getting sold to Strikeforce and Scott Coker. Guys started getting fights in Strikeforce. They were happy. From that point forward, now all of a sudden, sort of my my pool of contacts expanded. So now when I called, you know, some of these managers or agents and I needed information, I needed to know what their contract said, uh, you know, sort of the pool of people I could contact grew. People started to know who I, who I was. Uh, and then in 2011, I get asked to do a keynote speech at West Virginia Law School. I do a, a lengthy presentation, kind of walking through uh, what fighters were going through, how it doesn't operate as sport, how the UFC makes the vast majority of all revenue in the industry, and sort of how they control fighters. At the end of that presentation, one of the professors says, why hasn't there been an antitrust suit? And my, my response was, because I don't have a plaintiff yet. I was just waiting on a plaintiff. About a year later, Carlos Newton calls me. He goes into my voicemail. Um, I just let it sit there because I, I I can't understand who who's calling. I just I, I I can hear the phone number, so I let it sit there. Calls again, leaves a message. I still have the number, and I was like, man, all right, I guess I'll call. So I, so I I call his number, 
we ended up playing phone tag. I get him on the phone eventually. And he, he really doesn't say hello. He doesn't say, you know, there's no like ice breaking. He says, so if I fly into Arizona, you think we can meet up? I'm thinking, sure. Yeah, I'll go out to dinner with you. Who am I talking to? Still don't know. It's like, Carlos Newton. He mumbles. Carlos Newton. I'm like, from Toronto? He's like, yeah, yeah. And I'm kind of blown away by that because, like, literally three feet to my left, hanging on the wall, is a poster of Carlos Newton and Matt Hughes signed. He's the one that calls. And he says, he got my number from Pat Militich. Pat thinks he should meet with me. Can I meet? And I said, yeah, sure, I'll meet. Again, I'm thinking, you know, the likelihood of him coming to Arizona is minuscule. Um, no harm in me saying, sure, we'll meet. Literally about 10 days later, he calls. He's got a flight schedule. I'm like, oh, wow. Okay. Uh, yeah, when do you want to meet up? Thinking again, we're going out to dinner. And Carlos says, no, I'm, I'm going to stay by your house. I want you to pick me up in the morning, take me to your office, and give me your Westlaw password. <laughs> he did that for a week. Like literally being in a conference room, my Westlaw password is pulling cases. So about like Wednesday or Thursday of that week, I take him to a, I take him out to dinner and then I take him to uh, a baseball game. And I'm like, Carlos, what are, what are we doing here, man? Because I, I sort of had an idea as to what he was doing at that point. And Carlos laughs and he says, I, I've seen the articles you wrote. I've talked to people. I know you figured this out. You're going to file our antitrust suit. And I started laughing. I said, Carl, I'm a real estate lawyer. I don't care. You're going to file it. So like literally the next day we start, we start the research process for the case. It took us almost two years from, from that date to me. I ended up having to write a 117 page brief with about 300 exhibits that I'm FedExing around the country to get the national firms in to, to do this suit with me. That happened around the end of 2013. And then the following year, we basically worked on the complaint. We worked on plaintiffs. Um, and we filed at the end of 2014. That's sort of the background, my background, uh, how I got into MMA, uh, how, how does a real estate guy end up doing an antitrust suit? I just sort of had uh, a, a unique knowledge base, a unique skill set. And I, I had the will to do it, uh, which is probably the most important thing. I had the will to see it through. Now, why was it Carlos of all people? Because he's a brilliant fighter. Um, Carlos is one of the very, very few who we didn't have to explain anything to. Carlos intuitively figured this out on his own. And, and the way Carlos will put it is, I knew when I was world champion that they could pull the rug out from under me at any time. They could, meaning the promoter. Whereas if I was a boxer, I own my rank and title. I can move around with that, not here. They can pull it from me at any time. He figured that out. He knew if the promoter has that ability to control rank and title, they will dictate his worth. They will dictate his ascension. They will dictate his exposure to the public. 
they dictate whether he gets notoriety or not. All the things that lead to a fighter building value, they controlled, not him. Carlos intuitively knew that. Um, we didn't have to explain it to him. He just knew. Yeah, so I'm going to bring Miguel in here now. He's in Costa Rica. Yeah. Um, I know it's raining a little bit there, so if you stall out, Miguel will just kick you out. <laughs> but Miguel was involved with Bodog Fight and uh, Hook and Shoot, Euphoria, early ADCC. So I really wanted him in on this because, you know, he's an old school guy like me. I know he had some interesting questions about this. Miguel, we were just doing introductions, so we haven't really got into the lawsuit at all. We just kind of so talked about <clears throat> early to mid two thousands. It sounds like sounds like yeah, yeah. So we I, just kind of talked about Carlos Newton coming to him about the suit. So yeah, Miguel, you can kind of talk to him a little bit about what you did, and you know maybe go from there. Yeah, I was a pleasure to meet you. Thank you, Rob, for you joining. Um, I yeah, I I probably got started in the business in ninety seven. And my run lasted probably to about 2007, 2010, if you count the last three years here in Latin America. So um, I was there before Zufa and after Zufa. So I saw the way they operated, you know, firsthand. And I find, you know, many facets of the lawsuit interesting because um, just for as an observer, this is very plausible behavior that, that you know, that they weren't. They weren't trying to hide some of this behavior even, you know? So when you look over the, the, the paperwork, it almost seems as if um, they have to stall because if it goes all the way through, they really stand a good chance of losing. That's my general assessment of what I see. How did you see it when it came to you, you know, when you came to the realization that this was bigger than just one fighter? Oh, this this to me has been obvious I didn't know exactly when it was going to happen. And had I thought about it a little more, I would have been close to accurate. And by that, I mean, I didn't have a willing plaintiff until around 2014. And if you think about it, that's because that first batch of fighters that came up through Zufa is now getting to the end of their career. So if I, had I had I thought about it, I would have been close as to when this was going to happen. To, to me, it's been obvious, I mean, pretty much all along. I knew they had an antitrust problem. I knew. I, I just wasn't exactly sure uh, when there was going to be a will to actually file the case. And in fact, I, I think I've been sort of, I don't want to say victim, but sort of a victim of, I was talking about this too early. And by too early, I mean, I started saying this in 2007, 2008, 2009. And at that time, the media all loved the UFC. They, they didn't want to hear a jackass lawyer saying, you know, these guys are exploiting fighters and fighters are being abused. This is a monopolistic entity. That message just was not getting across at all. And uh, the, the other, at that time, I had incomplete information. I mean, that was very, very confident. My information was accurate but I couldn't prove it up from start to finish. You know, there'd be a, a piece in the middle where I'm logically inferring. It just has an example, production costs. Uh, you, you used to see fans, well, you don't know how much their events cost and all this and that. So I said, okay, you're right. I don't know exactly how much they cost, but I know exactly what the Super Bowl cost. And I know the UFC doesn't cost that much, but I'll assume it does. And I insert 
Super Bowl production costs into my estimate of pr promoter costs and promoter revenues. And I was getting very, very close, even with that back in 2008, 2009, 2010. Um, Post-2011, that West Virginia uh, presentation going into um, the very beginning of the antitrust suit. And there was also, at that time, an ESPN interview with Lorenzo Fertitta, Josh Gross, um, a few other people on ESPN examining fighter pay. I had a few more gaps filled in for me at that time by agents. And, and one, one hole that I still had at that time was the UFC was using what they call LOAs, letter of agreement, with uh, basically a handful of star fighters. And, and what that was is they would have their base pay. You know, let's say at that time it was 500,000 to fight, 500,000 to win. I knew that they had usually a pay-per-view split, a pay-per-view component where they get, you know, a dollar per buy after two fifty, dollar uh, twenty-five after, you know, three fifty or whatever it was. So they, they had a pay-per-view component. Well, a lot of these sort of star fighters would would in advance sell a portion of that pay-per-view bonus in the form of an LOA to get a guaranteed cash payment post fight. It might be my pay-per-view bonus doesn't start until buy 750, but I get an extra four million up front. That kind of thing. Uh, I, I learned about that right around the time that that ESPN uh, video breaks. Um, so again, my information is getting much closer. And then uh, obviously, you know, through the discovery in our lawsuit, pretty much what we've been saying all along has been proven accurate. We've been We've been very, very close all along. Yeah. Now, one of the things that you, you also hear the undercurrent of the of the lawsuit is that, you know, once you really get into looking at like the emails, the texts, and things like that, there are you, you're this strictly represents the fighters, but there are other potential victims of their monopoly. You know, promotions, uh, maybe managers. Uh, you know. Um, you know, Joe Gold might even have a case. You know, Joel was one of the, uh, you know, had a newspaper covering it. And, you know, he fell into bad graces with the UFC because he started helping the IFL produce their T-shirts. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden, you then somewhere around there, you also start to get now a color UFC magazine out, you know, in, with their distribution power and stuff. And so, you know... There could be a case, you know, there could be a lot of different victims of this monopoly besides the fighters. Now, obviously, the fighters are first and foremost are the most important, but they, you know, the UFC really, I think they took this wholesale approach to get everybody. So a couple of things about what you just said. So some, some of those people that you're mentioning, I was actually speaking to at the time I was researching filing this case. And, and what I quickly found was... <clears throat> What you said is true. Uh, fighters were not the only victim. It, it's it goes vertically and it moves horizontally over the entire industry. So so what, what happens when you have a monopolist in an industry? Typically, they monopolize all horizontal. You know, up and uh, below them, any any input below them, they take over, or they dictate who gets to participate. 
And then once they've taken over that, they start to move horizontally. And, and what we've what you saw was pretty much exactly that. So they start they started by making all of the uh, promoters who existed, say in 2001, they either took over, may disappear, or they allowed to stay as feeder leagues to them. Meaning, and, and, and that, this isn't even conjecture. Those promoters end up putting in a clause into their promotional agreements. We will give our fighters a release just to fight in the UFC. Nobody else, just them. What, what is that? Are they actually competitors at that point? Or are they a farm team? They're a farm team. Um, once that sort of move is completed, then all of a sudden they start moving left to right in terms of sponsors. They start taking over sponsors. They throw on a uniform. They start to take over media. They they boot media. They bless media, you know, as to who's going to get access. So now they're controlling who has access to, to, to report. All of that stuff is true. Clothing brands disappeared. Uh, Joel Gold's probably one of them. Uh, I believe he was FCF fighter, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, so that is 100% true. What I found when I was initially doing this research is the vast majority of those third-party providers, uh, the courts consider those claims ancillary to the actual victim. And by that, I mean the victim is the fighter all of these other service providers' claims are ancillary through. Uh, just another, another example, we were looking at, do agents have a claim? And uh, again, I learned no, because their claim is ancillary through the direct claim of the fighter. Now, the one exception to that would be promoters would have a claim that they are being foreclosed from putting on top-level MMA events because of the UFC's foreclosure of a necessary input. And the necessary input is top fighters. They don't have access to them. And in fact, you're, you're seeing um, a, a very similar lawsuit uh, as to the one I just said in terms of promotions in, um, it's either boxing or wrestling. It, it's an existing case that's occurring now and I, I just don't remember which one. Fascinating. I can tell you from Bodog, by the time it was 2007, Bodog was there for their, you know, 18 month run. Um, but they had some considerable re, uh, resources to make shows. Yes. Um, and we, we actually got on a pay-per-view and um, now I don't know this like factually, like I've checked it myself, but I heard from the office uh, from our first pay-per-view to our second pay-per-view, we were having problems. The exec that was our handler was, wasn't even returning calls at this point. And uh, we found out that that person had left the pay-per-view companies and was now employed by the UFC. Now, that could be coincidence, but, you know, it might not be. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, this this kind of stuff happened all the time. I mean, it, it, basically identical claims were with IFL. IFL execs all of a sudden disappear. Um, Strike Force at one time, um, I believe they think they had a mole uh, that was reporting Strike Force information back over to Zufa. Um, just another example, and you're starting to hear fighters talk about this. They're, ta they're talking about it in public. They'll say stuff like, we don't actually have managers, we have brokers. 
and, and by that, their managers can't actually perform the function of manager given the current industry. The, the UFC dictates who they work with on the management side. So, so what you end up with is the managers are quite literally acting as brokers that their real client is the UFC. It's not the fighter. It's the UFC. They're acting as a middleman broker to get their pool of fighters into the UFC. And they make the UFC's job easier because they, they're the ones that, you know, put up with the, the headache calls. I missed my flight. I, you know, I forgot my nutrition kit, you know, all that kind of crap. They got their babysitter doing that, but they're not actually looking out for the fighter. They're almost literally working on behalf of the UFC, but they're called managers supposedly have fiduciary duties <clears throat> and they literally can't operate because they don't operate in a competitive market. They, they literally basically have one buyer of their product, which is fighter. Now I want to ask you something that kind of, you know, the, there's been some talk recently and now I don't know how long ago UFC put this into the contracts, but this 360 clause where if a fighter creates anything basically like the the whiskey deal or the the hot sauce or whatever these things are that the UC now in all intensive purposes owns it. What do you think about that? And also it almost seems like the UFC is just doubling down on what they're doing. They're not doing any kind of preemptive goodwill to try and make what their selves look better in the eye of the public or the courts or anything. So a few things on this. Uh, I'll, I'll probably take a minute or two uh, to explain this. So the the, the UFC started. Um, I don't I don't remember when I first noticed, but it was well before they instituted a uniform. It became it it, be, it was obvious to me they had the right to instill a uniform. They just waited years to do it, and lo and behold, once they accomplished their strike force acquisition, very soon after uniforms come in. I don't think there that was any accident because as long as fighters had the option of signing with Strike Force, uniform would be very unpalatable. Take Strike Force away, now all of a sudden where you you can bitch all you want. Where are you gonna go? There was nowhere else to go. So now it's uniform time. Well, that right sat in that promo for years. They had the right to do it, they just waited. My another sort of example of that, and this is sort of the insidious nature of these clauses. So the UFC takes a merchandise rights grab in their promo and also in their merchandising rights assignment, you know, for lack of a better term, that gives them, you know, so-called so the non-exclusive right to use your image and likeness for anything they want, anything. The, the reason that's insidious is other sports athletes go out to Adidas or Nike, and they say, I want a $100 million deal because I'm exclusive to you. While a UFC fighter no longer can do that because they've already given the UFC a non-exclusive right to do whatever they want. And the, the practical impact of that is oftentimes, instead of that sponsor going to the fighter, the first call is now to the UFC because they got to address the UFC's right to do whatever they're doing. They have to call them first. I'm not investing millions of dollars if next week the UFC just puts out their own product. I got to get them on board first. 
that's effect one of, of clauses like this and why they're so sort of damaging to fighter value. I don't even think most realize that. Uh, when you go now, when a fighter goes out into the market to get major sponsors, they can never give a non-exclusive. They don't have the right. You've already given the UFC non-exclusive rights. So there's that. The sec to your latest question on these so-called so 360 deals, does it give the UFC the right to take 360 rights and, you know, ancillary products like whiskey deals? It gives the UFC the right to say this, and this might be their intent all along. The, the clause is written to where it's at least ambiguous. When uh, the third-party whiskey maker or the third-party video game or, you know, uh, computer software maker, you know, whatever the product is, they're going to ask the fighter, I need to see whatever you've signed before we can negotiate the deal. They're going to see this clause, and those lawyers are going to say, I don't know what the fuck that means. I got to talk to the UFC. So, again, the UFC is going to get call one. The other thing it does is because there's sort of some uncertainty as to how that clause is going to operate. There's a litigation risk. So the fighter knows they're not going to admit either way, whether they're going to take or not take. They are clearly going to insert themselves into at least the discussion with whoever it is wants to put up millions of dollars. That's why they put the clause into the deal in the first place. Why well, want to actually litigate this with the UFC? And we've, we've, seen repeatedly, there's little to no will to do that. Fighters are very, very afraid. Uh, they There's clauses written in the, to these promos. If you lose, you owe their attorney's fees. Uh, you have to litigate or you used to have to litigate these in uh, Nevada state court. I believe they've now changed that to uh, individual arbitration, which means, uh, again, it's a very insidious clause. Typically in a lawsuit, if I file a lawsuit, let's say, on the interpretation of the Ali Act to the UFC's promotional agreement, I just have to win one. I have to win one case. Because the next case, I'm going to hold up case one and say, we just did this. We're going to do the exact same thing again in the same court, and you're going to pay me. Well, the UFC now is putting in individual arbitration clauses, meaning that case is now going to be in private and apply only to you. I can't use it over and over. I can't hold up the result of that case and say, hey, judge, you just decided this. No, it's individual arbitration. These are all kind of control tricks to uh, create uncertainty, to create risk, and to raise the costs of fighters to enforce rights. That's why they put these in there. And, you know, whether they're enforceable or not, I think, honestly, is secondary. That's not the point. The point is they want to put themselves in the middle of that call. Now, I also wanted to ask you, like, uh, we're talking about uh, the UFC recently appealed. How long does it, does this delay the, the release of those discovery documents or no? No, it should not. Uh, in fact, the judge, and I'm going from memory, I believe he told uh, the plaintiffs and defendants to meet and confer by October 31st. 
and to make a filing on that date as to what we believe should remain redacted uh, with, with a strong presum presumption that he's going to reject any request. Um, but no, that, that appeal will not affect the unsealing of documents that have already been filed. He's, he's, already, he's already put us on notice that he scheduled that, and that should be coming, say, in the next two months. So we'll start seeing the documents probably November 1st. Before, yeah, before the end of the year, you will, yes. That should be some fun times. Yeah. yeah I, I think, it, you know, the UFC, the way they've played this is to just string it out, string it out. They've got the money for lawyers, right? So just play the delay tactic. Um, do you think, um, hold on, hold on one second. Let me ask you something while he's gone. I want to ask you, do you think some old characters like maybe Joe Silva or even the Fertitas could end up testifying in this case, most likely? The Fertitas almost assuredly will, because they, they are still, to my understanding, Vegas residents. So they were within a hundred miles of the court. Um, we can compel them to come testify. They've already testified uh, at deposition, or at least Lorenzo has. He's already testified at deposition. Uh, Joe Silva testified at deposition. In fact, the judge cites him uh, a number of times in his class certification order. Joe, I'm a little less certain about because he's now in Richmond, Virginia, and he's not a current UFC executive. So I'm not sure that we would actually need his testimony beyond what he's already done in his depot. Um, but the ones that are in Vegas, you know, Dana, Lorenzo, um, they, they will almost assuredly be testifying. I had told Miguel that you had mentioned some sort of email that Joe had had uh, created called We Own MMA. Maybe great. it was a great that. email. Um, it was dated February 2011. I don't remember the exact date, but I, I believe it was towards the end of the month. So it was like February 23rd or something. And in, in the email, he literally just cut and pastes, ranked one through 15 in each of the major weight classes, one on top of the other, on top of the other, on top of the other. And then in the subject line, he just says, we own MMA. And he sends it to Lorenzo and Dana. That's all he said. He didn't say anything else. And almost... Almost literally four weeks later, the strike force acquisition occurs. If you pull up Joe's email after that strike force purchase, they have virtually every one through 15 in every weight class. The, these guys knew what they were doing. They knew once we get one through 15 uh, in, in the major weight classes, it's self-perpetuating. And, and by that, I mean, you don't get to be ranked number four in the world Unless you beat guys in the top five, you can't beat a bunch of guys ranked 40 and 55th and 72nd and end up in the top five. It does not happen. You have to beat people in the top five to get into the top five. Well, how do you do that now? It's got to be with them. They knew. They knew. Fascinating. Now, I appreciate giving me the moment there. As I was saying, the UFC seems to me to be needing for their defense to string this out as long as possible and just play that end game. But what would you do with the country? Like we were sitting with a calculator, Todd and I, and let's say you had a thousand fighters in your, in the lawsuit and you were going to say, 
the UFC comes along and offers like an average of 400,000 per head as a settlement and you and just you know end this whole thing uh, that's only like 400 million for a company that's in the billions i know that's simplistic but they could probably afford it you know dana might be able to afford it himself you know it's less than half a billion dollars that way multiply it by 3 3000 fighters at 400,000 on average you're still at about 1.2 billion what how what would be the reaction to that kind of move by them If the has got $500 million in changes to business practices, I, th I think they'd be ecstatic, honestly. I mean, that's that's far more than they get, they have had now, right? Mm -hmm. um, to, to address a couple of things you said, so we, we get the class certification order on August 9th of this year. That order, instead of it being six plaintiffs asking for the court to certify a class, it's now 1,214 plaintiffs. Uh, pursuing the claim, um, six fighters representing all 1,214. In terms of delay, we had a status conference on August 21st. So he, the judge did them very, very tight together. We show up to the status con conference. Oh, one second. We show up to the status conference in Vegas. And within three minutes or so, the judge interrupts Zufa's counsel. And he says, just so it's clear, I'm going to be fast-tracking and setting for trial the Lee case, which is going to occur in March or April of 2024. And I'm going to work backwards from that endpoint to make all the other scheduling that we need to do. I want you guys to know that case is going to trial first. And that case is going to trial next year alone. Because what Zufa was trying to do is they were trying to say, we need to reopen discovery and Lee and combine it with Johnson and do injunctive relief all at the same time, which would have done exactly what you said. It would have put our trial date five to six years down the road. And the judge said, no, 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 no. Lee's going first. And then I'm going to re I'm going to open discovery in Johnson. So discovery will start immediately at the conclusion of the Lee trial. When discovery is complete in Johnson, we'll have a Johnson trial. And then after both, we'll have an injunctive hearing, which was very, very favorable to us because it cuts out delay. We can proceed with case one. And then after that case is done, we'll proceed with case two uh, while opening discovery. So we don't have we don't have to sit and wait, you know, for him to open discovery anymore. He opened it immediately. So we'll get the next batch of documents in. Uh, it was a very, very good day for us on at that hearing on the 21st um it sort of did away with their delayed strategy what was the reaction in the room like we were got sort of ecstatic i mean if if you check kung lee's instagram post you know right after, right after the hearing we we are basically in the lobby right outside the courthouse doors and people were like jumping around uh, it was, we were very, very excited. It almost could not have gone better for us. The judge listened to what we had been saying. Uh, and he basically agreed with everything we had, had set up to that point. He, he gave us what we asked for. Uh, our case can move forward. He, he acknowledged sort of the prejudicial delay that we've already gone through. He, for that reason, fast-tracked fast 
our our trial. He opened Discovery and Johnson, and then the final thing he did, he unsealed all the documents that have been. You mentioned this earlier. He unsealed everything that has been filed in the case. He said, "I'm not going to let anything be sealed." Uh, you know, due to the passage of time, uh, some of these documents are now eight, nine years old. How can they be trade secrets? He thought public import it is important for the public to know what these guys were doing. Um, so that process is is going to start, and you know, like like we spoke about, that's those those should be should become public. I'm guessing in about two months. And those could have a negative impact on their image, possible, you know. Well, there, there's one document in particular. Um, we we had a fourth expert on the plaintiff side. His name is Guy Davis, and what got, what we hired Guy Davis for. If you notice in their petition of appeal to the Ninth Circuit, one of their arguments is plaintiffs are requesting over a billion dollars in damages. That will triple Zufa as a company because Zufa's net revenues are less than 5% of what they're asking for in damage. That's what they say. What, what makes me chuckle about that is that's why we hired Guy Davis. And Guy Davis's job was show cash in to Zufa and cash out from Zufa, where did it go? And what that shows is the four owners took in cash, took in loans, and paid themselves billions of dollars in advance of revenue. Now, in years later, they're saying, oh, our net revenue is minuscule because we have to pay back these loans. Our response to that is, that's your problem. Go get it from the owners you gave billions of dollars to. That's not our problem. This isn't a cash flow problem. This is you levered yourself artificially to pay out earnings in advance. That brings up, a, you know, this may be a little more out of fantasy land because these things get taken care of corporately. But, you know, what are the chances with a judge's decision that goes favorably for the fighters that Dana actually comes out of pocket for some of it, loses some of his money, or he's going to go, he's going to walk away rich anyway. Right. Well, yeah, that's, that's sort of the downside to this. Uh, it bothers some of our plaintiffs um, because, you know, the unfairness of all of this reality is uh, in, in my view, the guys that designed this sort of result are not going to be on the hook for the award they, they've sold in advance. So it's going to end up being, you know, whoever shareholders are down the road who sort of foots the bill for the recovery. Let me ask you this, settlement-wise. Change of business practices would have to be part of any settlement. Money wouldn't wouldn't be enough. Yes or no? We agree with that, uh, which is why we've insisted there has to be an injunctive relief component. There has, there has to be, you know, the name plaintiffs are we're sort of adamant about this all along. There has to be some sort of change to how they're conducting business for this to have made sense to our plaintiffs. They want MMA to be a sport they can actually compete in. And by that, uh, John Fitch is a wrestler. He, he at one point won something, I, I believe, 14 fights in a row. And he only got one title shot. Even though 
he was ranked like number two for a period of over five years, only one title shot. And it's because the promoter didn't like him. They didn't like his style. They didn't like wrestlers. They thought he was boring. So they just pushed him to the side. That's not sport. Floyd Mayweather wasn't an exciting fighter. He just didn't get hit. You couldn't beat him. He became a great talker, but I, 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 I watched his fights. I don't remember anyone saying, you know, how exciting he was. He was good. That should be enough in sport. If you are that good, you can't be beat. You can hold on to a title for years. Yep. There, there are a lot of fighters that will have that, that same exact experience. You know, even Frankie Edgar with his, you know, he had title runs and things, but he got skipped over from McGregor. You know, that was clear as day. And there, there are a lot of examples. No, you're exactly right. And it's because they don't operate as a legitimate sport. They don't, they don't have to corrupt independent third-party sanctioning bodies. You know, we, we know there's been problems in boxing where there's been bribes and some corruption uh, paid to sort of mismanage rankings and things like that. Even with that corruption, though, boxers make multiples of what MMA fighters make because the UFC doesn't have to corrupt anybody. They just corrupted it from the jump because they control it. That's the part, that's the trick that they pulled on the, the public. Why the athletic commissions allowed this, I have no idea. They never should have. Um, but that that's how they've accomplished this result is because they dictate ascension. Uh, the result of that is Aljamain Sterling. This happened a couple of years ago. It, ha it happens repeatedly. You'll hear Dana White, he's playing Aljo off TJ Dillashaw, off, you know, somebody else, I'm drawing a blank. There's like three or four fighters who are in contention for a title shot, and Dana White will come out and say, Aljo's not ready. And what he's really saying is, Aljo hasn't signed his nine-fight extension yet. He's not ready. No other sport operates like this. This is the only one. Yeah, and, uh, you know, off the top of my head, you know, the, the examples that you're giving, and th that goes deep because that was company procedure, it would seem, more than these are the exceptions. 100%. We, we asked them about this at deposition, uh, and they would admit, oh, it only makes sense for guys to resign their extension before we give them a title shot. They just come flat out and say it. How often would, would you give a fighter a title shot with, one fight left. Never did. Never. Never did. Well, why not? Isn't that when the fighters are worth the most? Wouldn't some of them want to fight it out and see? Nope. None. It's not because they wouldn't. It's because they weren't allowed. You didn't get that fight until you signed that extension. I wanted to ask you one more thing. I saw where Eric Mangrakan, I think his last name, he had made a video about the man you know, some managers could end up getting in hot water over this, but I saw you said that I wanted to get some clarification. Do you think that is true or no? So the, the, the mistake that Eric made is he assumed when the judge said everything is going to be unsealed, that the judge meant the entire pool of documents. And what the judge really meant is everything that's been filed in the case is going to be unsealed. So some of the more salacious items that I've heard being bantered about in public um, are in the pool 
but they haven't been filed because they weren't germane to our motion, right? So, you know, some of the things being referred to uh, are not going to be unsealed because they haven't been filed. Yeah, just saving them from, like you said, some of the more salacious stories that are out there, that might be enough of a, you know, for them to chalk that up as a win. Oh, of course. Uh, I mean, you know, the way Fitch put it is some people are dodging bullets. For now. No. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Well, Miguel, you have anything else? No, I'm, you know, I'm sure I'll come up with a million things. Uh, yeah. This has been very enlightening and very much, uh, you know, a, a treat because, you know, I, I can speculate to a certain extent because I, I've been, you know, a pretty close observer to this throughout the whole time, but this was a real deep dive, you know, by an expert. So I, I deeply appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, if you have any, any questions, text me. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll be happy to answer. Yeah, Rob, I appreciate your time and taking time to talk to us. Uh three old school guys that Rob said he remembered us from the forums and whatnot. So yeah, it was great. Yeah, to I, de have I you. definitely remember your name. I just wasn't <laughs> sure, you know, exactly where, but yeah, I remember Todd Atkins for sure. <laughs> I don't think, I don't think people liked me back then. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they've never Love liked that. me, so no, no worries. <laughs> <laughs> well, Rob, I appreciate it. And as always, Miguel, it's always great to talk to you. And uh, yeah, I share Miguel's sentiments. It's always, you know, we were covering this and to have you on here was really awesome to kind of pick your brain about all this and, you know, to kind of see, you know, we'll be looking forward to see, you know, as this goes down. No, thanks. Thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, when something else happens, I'll come back on. All right. Well, I appreciate it guys. And uh, take care. Thank you. Oh, uh, the, the one thing I'll add is if there's any fighters watching this, we, we encourage you to go to ufcclassaction.com. On that site, you can leave your email address. If you have any questions, you can type them in and say you want to talk to one of the attorneys. Uh, somebody will give you a call, and that's that's confidential, so you don't have to worry that it's being turned over. It's not. Um, but again, that site is ufcclassaction.com. So more people can join into this. Well, what we really want is we want their contact information for when we actually have to start sending notices. So we have it. Uh, the reality is you guys, all, all the fighters in that class, and that's if you fought in about after December 16, 2010, up to June 30th, 2017, you are part of the Lee case. You are now represented by the five firms listed on the legal tab of that website. So if any other attorneys, and I know that this is happening because I've seen it, uh, you you are likely to get solicitations now. And the solicitations will be calls or mailers or FedExes that say stuff like, in order to share in your share of the recovery in the Lee uh, versus Zufa antitrust suit, you need to retain your own counsel and they're encouraging you to hire them. That is not true. And in fact, in my view, that is deceptive. What they're really saying to you is they're trying to opt you out so they can come up with their own little subclass and try to negotiate their own deal. Well, ultimately, that the result of that is usually uh, the fighters get less, 
but the attorneys get more because more are trying to break off a piece. So we encourage you. What are the years covered in Johnson? Johnson starts right after. So Johnson would be July 1, 2017, up until current. And it should move forward uh, going into the future for at least a couple of years uh, through the discovery process. That's why we filed the Johnson case. So we didn't have any time period gap. So in theory, every fighter who's ever fought could get a payout. Except except for there was some fighters uh, that were pre-2010 right. who will not be included. But uh, anyone, yeah, post those dates are, are now one of the two. Um, Johnson has not yet been certified as a class because we just opened Discovery. But the lawsuit that was filed is largely identical to Lee. It's it's just a later it's just a later time period. Wow. Jeez, that could be huge. Sorry, sorry, I didn't throw that in before. Um, but yeah, good, good that I got it in. Could be a massive number. It can be a big number. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, looking forward to seeing right, how everything you. plays out. I know you'll be busy, and best of luck to you. All right. Thank you very much. Yeah. Take care. Bye. All right, so I hope everybody uh, enjoyed that episode. And uh, if you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe to it. And uh, please check out my YouTube channel, which is uh, Todd Atkins Show. Uh, please subscribe to that as well. Uh, uh, I appreciate the support. And uh, share this podcast around. If you, uh, if you like it, you think other people might like it, share it with other MMA fans. And, uh, yeah, I just appreciate all the support. And... Uh, you know, don't really need anybody's money or anything. I just appreciate people subscribing and uh, sharing stuff out and helping helping us grow and helping me grow and we can all grow it together. So anyone who's taken the time to listen to this, I appreciate it, you know, a great deal. This stuff I love doing, you know, just for fun. And uh, I've been around support from the beginning, so this is probably stuff I'd be talking about even if I wasn't recording it. So I'm glad to do this and... You know, like I said before, I was, anybody who takes the time to listen to it, I'm really grateful that you did. And I just hope that you enjoy these episodes and, you know, just feel free to, you know, kind of give some feedback if you want to or what you want to hear, anything like that. Appreciate you listening to the episode and until the next one, take care. <laughs>